<laughs> the relationship guru. What that means is that if any of us are not in perfect relationship, clearly it's your fault. Because apparently I have all the answers. It's actually, um, joking aside, relationships are hard, hey? I mean, it's, it's tricky. Uh, and we've been speaking over the last two Sundays about the mistakes we sometimes make or the difficult spaces we sometimes find ourselves in as a result of relationships. And today, um, after having set the, the groundwork a little bit, um, we're going to start looking, once again, what we talk about this Sunday will apply to all relationships, but we'll look a little more specifically at the workplace today, just to engage a different part of your mind um, in the way relationships can work. You know, at, the, at, at any place of work, there's that place of fearsome gossip and character defamation known as the water cooler. You know that place, right? It's, uh, it's also the place you go to try and look like a detective from a 90s American cop show. Um, but if you don't have a shoulder holster or, or you know, paper cups, it, you don't get this at all. None of you have thought about the water cooler in the way I have, clearly. Well, the water cooler, for the sake of this sermon, just suspend your disbelief, is the place you go to talk to whoever other than the person you should be talking to about the stuff that's gone on. Ah, the flipping boss. Ah, the flipping, you know, millennials who work for us. Ah, the jolly copy lady. Ah, whoever else. And we will go and have conversations at the water cooler with anyone other than the person we should be having. Okay? You're aware of this idea. It goes on in workplaces. Uh, the technical term for it is gossip, I suppose. Um, you know, the sort of sideline conversations that we have. And we know it goes on. We know we avoid conflict. We know we don't like giving critical feedback. We know that we prefer to talk to other people when we're hurt as opposed to talking to the person who hurt us or disappointed us or ignored us or disrespected us in some way. We know that it goes on. But do we always know why and what to do about it? Um, because most of our experience is that those kinds of side conversations tend not to do much good. Uh, and actually what ends up resulting is that you end up creating little camps You've been annoyed by someone, your nose out of joint because of someone. You then chat to some others about it who agree with you and say, yes, you're totally right, and he's totally a douchebag, and then you have a little team that agrees with you, and uh, word gets around, and then you know, the person being referred to hears that there's a posse who's already pre you know, preparing their lynching plans, and they're just all unreasonable, emotional, no-nothings, no and they, if they would only come and talk to me and feel really offended that you didn't speak to them, but we don't speak to one another because conflict is scary. And first idea that you can have for free. Uh, the bully and the bulldozed are equally scared. We find conflict scary. The idea that we're going to actually turn up and let each other be honest is a very scary idea. The truth is terrifying. I really like being able to imagine and decide how people feel about me. The idea of actually knowing for real how people feel about me is terrifying, isn't it? And I mean, I suspect it's the same for you. And so when you do end up with a clash of perspectives on something where one person thinks something was important and another person has been ignoring it, where one person feels disrespected, the other didn't notice they were doing it, when one person's agenda has been trampled over again and again and is now cross with whoever when you've been relying on someone for something and they've consistently disappointed you and you're forced to talk about it, it's a scary place to be because our failings and our needs are both equally visible. You're actually going to admit what you need to another human being, which is scary to do, because then they can tell you, but those needs are illegitimate. You shouldn't need that. I don't care that you need that. And so in that moment of conflict, the person who's shouting loud, the person who's being super assertive, the person who's getting what they want, is just as scared as the person who's going, oh, well, it's no big deal. Okay, oh, whatever, I'll just take it on the chin. 
This idea of really showing up and really being vulnerable and saying, this is how I feel and this is what I need is scary to do. And so in those moments, you might have noticed as the adrenaline starts to course through your veins, as your blood pressure starts to rise, that those things you need in conversation, those critical little units of meaning called words, disappear, don't they? It's so frustrating. The vocab that you need at that second seems to be anywhere but in your brain, uh, just as you're having this conversation. And you'll know this happens to you if you've ever had the experience of waking up the next day and going, I should have said that. Have you had that experience? Oh, I wish I'd said that. And most of you, because you're not very much like Jesus, wake up the next morning and actually think things that you should have said, which would have been even more intense, would have shut them up properly, right? Or was that just me? Like, oh, if I thought of that, that would have ended the conversation. I'd have looked very clever if I had only thought to say that. But some of you, and maybe your more Christ-like moments, also wake up the next morning going, oh, I shouldn't have said that. That was, that was too much. I've now created relational carnage that I can't undo. I can't unsay the things I said. I wish I had just been more gracious in that moment. I wish I had just tried a little harder to understand their perspective. I was so sure in that moment that I was right, that I stopped listening. And actually, in retrospect, I can see I was a part of this as well. I wish we had been able to communicate. I wish we'd been able to understand one another in that second. But your vocabulary deserts you as the blood pressure rises, as the red mist closes in as this person stops being a human being and starts being the opposition who just needs to be defeated at all costs. So what do we do? We're going to get really practical today because we are going to some mighty scriptures, some amazingly practical scriptures that are going to just lay out a strategy. Do this, don't do that. Say this, then say that. If that doesn't work, try this. This is going to be awesome. You're going to walk out of here armed with great Tools, not weapons, tools to be able to negotiate conflict moments really well. Um, and this starts with the concept of your words. And there are loads of scriptures on your words. I could quote 15 proverbs to you about just how powerful your words are. But I find what James has to say fascinating about when it comes to words. And just before we get there, the, the final thing that I want us to sort of have framing the conversation before we get practical about what to do. Um, we started this whole series talking about not fighting for things to be fair, that your goal in a relationship shouldn't be fairness, that there's a higher standard, that we're aiming for connection with one another, we're aiming to honor one another, we're aiming to be gracious, that that is far better than just fighting for fairness and getting your own way. That kind of posture of, I would like to forgive you if I possibly can, right? That's what we want, and that should frame this whole conversation um, so that when we start talking about these practical tools, this doesn't just sound hardcore and transactional. Uh, so that really needs to frame your thinking. And the other thing I just want us to have in our mind is that by the end of today, there will be something illegal from now on, which is the reluctant, bitter, yes. We're just not going to let that thing happen anymore. You know what I'm talking about? That reluctant kind of grudging yes that you get out of people, which is actually the death of relationship. We're going to prove to one another as we go through Scripture that that way of relating, where the, the ticks don't go blue for quite a long time, and then eventually you say, oh, okay, well, fine. We're never doing that again. We are covenanting with one another that if it's yes, it's a wholehearted yes, and if it's no, it's an honest and gracious no, and the reluctant, resistant 
bitter, annoyed yes that comes with hooks attached and comes with a bunch of manipulation because actually I don't trust you. We're just not doing that anymore because it's bad for a relationship. Okay, so that's where we're going to try and get to. And I've said that without proving it to you at all. So try to check back in with me if you think that that's evil what I'm talking about. And let's go to James 3 on the topic of our words. Indeed, we all make many mistakes. And then James seems to have found a common denominator in almost all of our mistakes. If we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. I'm just saying the mistakes we make, the scrapes we get ourselves into, the bad decisions we find ourselves making almost always have a relational component. And relationships are words, aren't they? Almost more than anything else, we relate to one another with what comes out of our mouths. And James is saying if we could just control our tongues, if we could say what we should say instead of going silent, if we could not say what we shouldn't say when we start hurting one another with our words, if we could control ourselves, we'd avoid so many mistakes. We would end up actually pretty much living how we want to live. If you could get your tongue under control, you could get any part of yourself under control. Interesting who he's talking about you controlling. Hey, Those who are doing the parenting course, you can say amen at this point. The Bible only ever speaks about you controlling one person in the whole world, and that's you. No one else. You know who else believes that? God. He doesn't ever suggest that he's going to control you. As nice as that would be, oh God, could you just take that desire away? Could you just force me to stop doing that thing? He says, sorry, I'm far too good of a parent to try and control you. I'm going to coach you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to help you replace wrong beliefs with right beliefs. I'm going to make you brave and courageous. I'm going to love you through the process. But the goal is you controlling you, not your kid, not your employee, nobody else. You don't get to control anyone else but yourself, the hardest person on earth to control. And James reinforces that same idea. Your job is to control yourself, no one else. No one gets to control you, which means you don't get to blame anyone else. You're in charge of you. And the hardest part of you to be in charge of is your tongue. The words you use are so difficult to get under control, and the words you use cause all the mistakes you make. Got it? So that's the starting point. We want to be able to speak right in our relationships, particularly when they get a little difficult when we're disagreeing or dishonoring one another. So what should we be saying if our words are so important, if we should be controlling our tongues? Ephesians 4, verse 15. Just love this verse. As I've watched my own relationships and the dumb mistakes I've made, as I've watched many relationships and have had the privilege to counsel some of those and be invited into some, this skill is the thing. This is the skill we need to grow into. Rather, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. If you want to look like Jesus, learn how to speak the truth in love. Oh, that's easy, right? We do that all the time. We know about speaking the truth in love. I promise that you don't. I promise you, this is the hardest thing, to figure out how to speak the truth, the absolute, undiluted, honest truth, not just what will make the conversation end well, not just what will get them to feel about you the way you want them to feel about you, not just the thing they're hoping to hear to try and smooth the waters, the truth ungardened, unapologized for the truth, but in absolute love. To figure out how to do that is the key that unlocks using the right words in relationships. Okay, and Jesus does this brilliantly. Have you noticed? He is not afraid to speak the truth. He loves better than anyone on earth has ever loved. He models love perfectly, and yet he is brutally committed to the truth. He is prepared to confront you. No, that's wrong. That's not just unpleasant. That's sin. Who speaks like that? Jesus is prepared to, and he's prepared to, in his speaking of the truth, offend religious leaders who could and eventually did kill him. He's prepared to offend the people who followed him. Jesus 
regularly shrunk his church because he was prepared to speak the truth. Jesus spoke the truth to his family when it offended them. They were keen to get in the way of his ministry and were against him at one point, and he was prepared to speak the truth to these people who he loved. He was prepared to speak the truth to people who were really influential and could have helped his ministry go easier. He was prepared to speak the truth to his disciples who were heartbroken to hear that they had disappointed him, but he was absolutely okay with saying, Peter, I know you love me. I know this is going to crush you, but get behind me, Satan. And not just words. Jesus was prepared to back up those honest words with some honest boundaries. No, you three get to come with me on this assignment. The rest of you don't. Modern day terminology for this is boundaries. And Jesus was so brave, so honest, so totally present. He wasn't sweeping anything under the carpet. He wasn't sort of out of convenience, leaving some things unsaid. He was absolutely honest and yet absolutely loving, totally gracious. He finds a way somehow to speak the truth in love. And that means we get to do the same. We get to learn how to speak the truth in love. And many of us struggle to do both, don't we? Speaking the truth, that just sounds like, I mean, who likes giving critical feedback? Like, say I if it's you, because you're a freak. (laughs) No one does. No one likes giving critical feedback at work. No one likes being honest when it's not good news. And so we use the label of love as the excuse to not speak the truth, right? Oh, well, for the sake of the relationship, I'm just going to not say. I'll, I'll be the bigger person and take it on the chin. I'm sure they didn't really mean it. Oh, well, they're probably not ready for it right now. I'm not sure they're mature enough to cope with this, so I'll just, I'll, I'll just have grace. I'll take up the slack because they're not quite ready. They're in a difficult moment right now. Sure, their life is hard. Uh, and so just for pity's sake, I won't speak the truth. Do you hear how condescending you are when you speak like that? You don't have the right to decide what this person is ready for or not, actually. And I would submit to you that, in fact, it is impossible to have love for very long without truth. I think it's possible to speak the truth without love. Oh, yeah. Oh, I told them. I sent that email. No, you can definitely speak the truth without love and cause pain without any grace. But I submit to you that for you to have real love for any length of time, you have to have real honesty. Because otherwise what happens is it festers, doesn't it? Oh, cool. I'll be the bigger person. I'll take it on the chin. But as soon as you start doing that condescending thing, the days of this relationship are numbered. It's going to turn into some parent-child kind of, we'll be kind to one another. We're not going to love one another. And so we're called somehow to find a way to be honest to speak the truth in love, to not be condescending and withhold the truth, to not be cruel and give the truth with no love, but to find some way to do both. And Jesus models it. And this is hard. I mean, what we're talking about now is literally saying, hey, look, when you did that, it made me feel X. Hey, I'm finding you hard to be around at the moment. I used to enjoy your company, but now it's scary to me. Hey, I used to be able to rely on you. Now I feel like it would be irresponsible for me to trust you anymore like to be able to actually speak like that and somehow do that in love is what the scriptures are calling us to i don't think you can have love without having truth matthew 5 we're now going to get into how to do this how to do this truth telling the actual This is the playbook. This is what you do when some truth telling needs to be done because you value the relationship too much to get into tolerance. So the first half is when you start to sniff that maybe you've done something wrong. And then the second part of Matthew will go to is when it's the other way around. So Matthew 5 verse 23, you're 
um, if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, not you're sure, not it's justified, not, oh, and the thing you did was definitely, definitely wrong enough. No, you just get the impression. You start to realize someone's got something against you, even if you're innocent. Leave your sacrifice at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. In modern day language, you're busy worshiping God. You realize someone is nose out of joint with you. Stop worshiping God and go and be reconciled with them. It would give God more glory. It would please him more for you to go and be honest and reconcile with this person than for you to keep on going through the motions of churchiness. That's less glorifying to God. Singing praises to him, talking about how glorious he is, worshiping his holy name is less important in that moment than going and fixing that relationship. Oh, well, it's, it's not a big deal. I mean, I'm, I'm with God right now. Who cares? Well, God, apparently, cares. The God who created that person, who loves that person, isn't excited for you to come and tell him how holy you are as you hang out with him while you leave relationships unsorted out. You know, I love that person. That person bears my image. It is better worship to God to go and be reconciled than to keep on worshiping. Interesting, huh? And not just privately in your heart forgive them or privately in your heart decide that you're going to solve it. No, stop what you're doing. Put down your sacrifice. Get up and walk out of the church. Say, the best thing I can do to worship God for the next little while is go and be reconciled to this person. If you were here two weeks ago when we started the series, you might remember 1 Peter chapter 3. I won't put it up, but it was this verse on marriage and finished with this incredible line. Treat your wives as you should, husbands, so that your prayers won't be hindered. So it's not okay to say, well, my relationships are in a mess and I'm at war with my spouse, but I'm good with God. So I'm just going to go and spend some time with God and and that stuff, it doesn't matter how people feel about me because I know how God feels about me. God is saying, well, if you really want to worship me, if you really want to live for me, if you really want to give me something that I'm going to be pleased with, go and be reconciled. Sort out your relationships. That's as important worship as any other thing you can do. Which is not to say that it's impossible for you to be good with God while you're fighting with someone else. That's not how it works. You don't have your relationship with God via anyone else. So, of course, you can be in strife and you can be struggling to forgive and you can be struggling to fix relationships and still be absolutely right with your father. Of course. But it's fascinating to understand the place God sees reconciliation in. That he takes it so seriously that you can stop other worship to go and do that, and that's a better call. So that's when you get the sniff that you might have beef with someone, when someone might have beef with you. Okay, you're like, oh, okay. Even if it's all on their end, even if they've totally misunderstood, go and figure it out. Go and be reconciled. Go do some speaking the truth in love. What about when you are being sinned against, when you are being hurt by someone? A few chapters later in chapter 18. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. If you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again. So that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt SARS employee. Wow, this is quite a passage, huh? And even if you believe that God created you and God created the person you're fighting with and God knows exactly the right way for you to solve your conflict, at first glance, you might read this and go, that just sounds strange. (laughs) What 
What do you mean? Someone hurts you, someone offends you, someone sins against you, and you're supposed to go and talk to them? Right out of the gate, you might be going, well, that's just for someone else. I don't know about that. I'm supposed to actually go up to people and let them know that they've hurt me? And then, okay, I knock on the boss's door. I say, hey, look, sorry, that mail you sent the other day, the way you spoke about so-and-so, I just felt that was a bit off sides. And, and the boss goes, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Are you? Okay, 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 great. I'm glad we've had the conversation and you run out. No, that's not good enough. Until you're actually sure that you have been reconciled, that you have been heard and heard the other person and found a way to move forward, you're supposed to go back again when your boss sends that same email using the same pejorative term the next day. You're supposed to take a mate with you, knock on the door. Hey, Mr. Smithers, me and Bob here are here to chat to you about the way you're talking about so-and-so in your e email, you know, off-handed comments. It's, it's hurting Relationships here, it's bad for culture. I'm finding it difficult. I don't know what your intentions are, but we need to have this out. And if your boss is still not interested, then you're supposed to go and recruit some elder from a church. And by the way, church elders know a bit about politics. Okay? Not, not in this church, obviously, but allegedly churches can be very hard places relationally. So elders are quite good at this. You're supposed to recruit someone from the church to go and be a mediator and help you in that conversation. This sounds so difficult. Oh, you hurt me. Oh, I'm annoyed with you. Oh, I'm finding you scary to be around. Oh, I'm battling to trust you. We're supposed to be able to have these conversations, and this just sounds so hard. So even if you believe God knows what he's talking about, we're still going to need to go through this and really understand why this is a good idea. Otherwise, I don't expect very many people to follow this. So let's actually try and understand what God is saying here. First point, if another believer sins against you, this means... You've actually got to go and do something about it. Yeah, but what about forgive 77 times 7? What about turn the other cheek? Yeah, fine. That's absolutely true. Go and study turn the other cheek and recognize just what a powerful instruction that was to really be quite self-determining. But forgiveness, I wonder if we've not stretched the definition to now some kind of bad stewardship where it's like, okay, fine. I know that I've sent five grand to the last four Nigerian widows who've mailed me saying that they need it for the death duties. But out of forgiveness and a desire not to judge, I'm going to keep on sending my five grand to every other Nigerian widow who emails me saying that with the death duties she can inherit and I'll earn generally about 50,000 pounds, right? Stop doing it. Like, it's not forgiveness to keep on making the same mistake and like accepting IOUs from teenagers. Like, you've only need to do that once to know that's a bad idea. You can forgive, but that doesn't mean you should accept the IOU another time. Oh, shame, I know he robbed me last week, but I've forgiven him, which means now as that guy walks past, yes, I see that he has a shopping list and a balaclava and a crowbar, but I shouldn't lock my door because that's judging. Okay, we're taking it to an extreme, but here's the thing. God has put some good stuff in your life. He's given you emotional capacity for relationships. He's given you some energy. He's given you some stuff that you are passionate about achieving with that energy and that relational capacity. He's given you some money. He's given you some time. And if you consistently allow people who don't respect that to abuse it, you're being a bad steward of the things God has given you. And you are robbing yourself and the other people that stuff is for. Oh, well, but I'm supposed to forgive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're not supposed to keep giving access to the good things God has given you to steward. At some point, you get to say there is a difference between love and trust. And I'm going to double down on this idea. See, I threw it out last week, but I'm convinced that... It's possible to absolutely love someone and not absolutely trust them. And you know this. If you're a parent, you don't trust your kids with the car keys. You love them. They're not ready. 
And particularly if they've proven it in the past and done some damage in the past, it is your God-given responsibility to steward the things he's given you wisely. Which means when another believer sins against you, when someone hurts you, when someone steals some of the joy that you have, it's not mature to say, oh, I'll just take it on the chin. I'll let them keep stealing it from me. Generally, if you're prepared to make that statement, it's actually because you don't believe there's anything really valuable inside you. And if you were convinced that your state of mind, your joy, your faith levels, your love levels, your emotional capacity actually mattered, you'd be prepared to say, well, you are not responsible enough to get that much access to me anymore. Because that's what trust is. Trust is I'm going to give you access to the good things in my life and ask you to be responsible with those things, which means you can hurt me. And if you do, yeah, I'll forgive you. We'll find a way. But we're going to have to talk about that. I don't just get to tolerate and duck and dive and let it slide. That's starting to look like bad stewardship of the good things God has put inside your life. So first line of this, if someone sins against you, go to them. Confront them. Oh, but shame. They're in a bad place. Oh, but I'm sure they didn't mean it. Lies. You're not sure they didn't mean it. In fact, you suspect they did. Tell the truth in love. Oh, well, I bet it won't happen again. I'm sure it won't happen again. You're lying. You don't know it won't happen again. In fact, you subtly think it will. Oh, well, I know they love me. They just show it in a funny way. Who's the love for? You. You get to describe what it should look like. It's for you, isn't it? If it was for them, of course they could do it however they wanted. But the love's for you. You get to paint some pictures. Newsflash, God is not afraid to let you know how he wants you to love him. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you love me, you'll live in a certain way. If you love me, you'll accept the fact that I love you too much to let you keep on doing that thing that's hurting you and hurting our connection. If God is prepared to confront you when you sin with loads of grace but absolute truth, you are not more spiritual than God. And you don't get to go, well, I'll just keep taking it on the chin. I'll just be the bigger person. Stop being condescending. Speak the truth in love. Then forgiveness is possible. Because while forgiveness is sometimes a private issue. Reconciliation is never a private issue. You don't get to stand there quietly and say, I've forgiven them, and now we're reconciled. It doesn't work that way. I'm going to have to go to you and do some hard work and say, hey, this thing happened, and it hurt me, and it made me feel like this, and I'd love to understand why you did that, and I need you to know that you understand why I'm feeling this way. And off the back of that conversation, forgiveness is possible. And off the back of forgiveness, them earning trust again is possible. But don't be a bad steward and just get walked over every time. You're far too valuable. There's good stuff inside you that this church needs, that this world needs, that you need, that your family needs. So back to Matthew 18. Sorry for the rant. This really matters to me, clearly. Must have some problems in my life. (laughs) Using the pulpit as a confessional. Um, So first line, if a believer sins against you, go. Key point, privately. See, this is where it starts to get so frustrating because if we keep tolerating and sweeping things under the rug and not having the honest conversations it doesn't stay private because at some point your elastic runs out and this person has hurt you three four ten times too many and now you're making those jokes that aren't really jokes or you're in public you're praying certain prayers then you're actually not speaking to god you're speaking to this person yeah you've been around that or you end up at the water cooler and you let out the big sigh at work hoping someone says man what, are you okay what's going on and you're like well since you asked and then you come with the whole list of offenses or you're the person on facebook going you think you can trust people hashtag you know who you are 
Yeah? And it's no longer private, when really this should have been private ages ago. Because the Bible has this idea of keeping short accounts. If you let people get into debt with you and they don't know it, you're being cruel to them. That's not love. This is why I don't think love can exist without absolute honesty. Because if you're not being honest, hey, you're hurting me, you're wounding me, I'm extending grace to you, I'm extending grace to you, and the person never knows, they don't know that they've racked up massive debt with you. The next thing, they can't repay it, you can't carry the burden any longer, you're bitter, and it all comes out. So you go privately. Because the truth is, you don't have 20-20 vision. You need to know how they're seeing it. And what you want, please understand, when you're in some disagreement with people, if you think they're seeing things a different way from you, even if it's minor and you think you're such a spiritual athlete that you can just cope with it and not be offended, what you actually really need, what your relationship needs, what love needs, is to be understood, to be heard. You think you want justice once you've let pain build up. You think you want the big apology and to be proven right. You think you want that, but that's not actually what you need. What you need is to see the penny drop inside this person as they go, oh, I understand how you feel. That's what you want. That's what causes reconnection. Most fights don't actually have to end with some huge, big, well, I promise to always do this, and I promise to never do that, and you were totally right, and I was totally evil. That's not how fights end. They don't need to. You don't need to push it to that win-win, sorry, that win-lose place. There's a spot long before that where you can see the penny drop, and the person goes, I'm I can understand how you've experienced that. I can see what it is that you needed. I feel the force of what you're feeling. And then, magically, in that conversation, you get to pass the microphone over, and they get to say, and listen, here's what I need, and here's my perspective, which is what caused me to behave in that way. And I didn't think I was being evil. That seemed like a logical thing for me to do. I can see how, from your side, that looked dreadful, but can you understand what's important to me? Boss getting annoyed with employee. Employee is late every day. Boss is getting bent out of shape because the boss cares about building a culture of professionalism and punctuality and that we're here pulling together. And employee so-and-so is 20 minutes late every day. And the more boss starts to clamp down and he's doing the subtle, manipulative stuff that we all do and he's dropping comments and he's in group emails saying stuff that's kind of obviously directed at employee X and all that relational funk, if at some point they could sit down and chat, Boss might go, hey, listen, I want you on time because I'm trying to build a culture here and I want the people who arrive early not to be punished by the people who arrive late. And employee gets to say, okay, I understand why that's a big deal to you. For me to get there at that time with the taxis I have to take and the transport I need means I have to pay someone else to take my kid to work. So it costs me 100 bucks a week extra to be here at 8. If I could just be here at 8.10, I think I could probably make it work. Boss goes, oh, my goodness, I didn't understand that this was costing you X. Employee goes, oh, my goodness, I didn't understand what this was costing the culture. And they've been heard. And being heard is what you want, not being right. Because your vision is not 2020. And so we are committed to doing this in private while we can still hear each other and keep it safe, as opposed to having grace, 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 snaps, public. And now there's my camp who thinks he's a douchebag, and there's your camp who thinks that he's unreasonable. Let's go back to the Bible. It's better. Um, <laughs> privately. If you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again. So this is this idea that we are so committed to this relationship, we're not prepared to sweep it under the rug. What should you do if you are the person who gets called in as the third party? 
because you've all heard a preach on it now. You're experts. Someone's going to ask you, hey, I'm having a fight with so-and-so. We did the private thing, and we haven't understood one another. Please come with me. What's your job if you're the third party? It's not to be on your mate's side. It's not. You don't go there saying, well, now the two of us are going to make you see. Your job is to make sure that both get heard, right? If that's what you know both need, is to be heard and understood, then if you're the third party, you're going, okay, wait, 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 sorry, you, you're starting to make judgments about so-and-so. Just tell us how you feel. Tell us what you need. Uh, okay, so-and-so just said X. I'm not sure if you really made sense to my mate yet. Could you just say that in a different way? What, what is it that you're feeling here? What is it that you need? Okay, what is it that you need? What is it that you need? And you're trying to do your best as the third party to help them hear one another. And then, okay, so what are you guys going to do to fix this? That's your job if you're the third party. So keep dialogue open. And then, of course, if it gets pear-shaped, really, um, we're supposed to treat people as pagans and tax collectors, which is to say to love them, pray for them, and not give them access to the good things in our lives. I'm going to love you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to forgive you. But until there's reconciliation... You don't get access to all the good stuff in my life. That would be bad stewardship. You've proven yourself unreliable. And so I'm going to communicate and let you know how you can earn that trust again. But if I was to keep giving away the good stuff in my life to you, I'm robbing the people who should have it. Cool. Where does this idea come from that you can be fully loved and not fully trusted? Luke 16. This is God speaking. Jesus in the form of a parable. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Love and trust are not the same thing. And you can only give one of them unconditionally. If you're giving both unconditionally, i.e. if you are trusting unconditionally, if you're never honest about what's going on, If you're never giving feedback, that love is on borrowed time. Unconditional love can only actually survive and be real love, not be some kind of condescending pity, but real love where you're really connected. If you're being honest enough to say, hey, when that happened, it's making it harder for me to trust you next time because you've hurt me in that way. And even if you don't buy this stuff, even if you're such a spiritual athlete that you go, no, it's fine. I can keep giving unconditional trust and taking hits People who don't require others to be trustworthy aren't very trustworthy themselves. It is hard to trust someone who lets you rack up debt with them and doesn't let you know. Because you're going, I'm, I'm sure I'm hurting you in some way. I'm sure that was unacceptable. And this glazed on smile sort of remains, and I don't understand where I really am with you. Speaking as someone who's had to be forgiven often, I really appreciate knowing what it is I'm being forgiven for. Being forgiven in silence never gives us an opportunity to really reconcile and understand one another. And if I've hurt you, I want to know how, and I want to know what it's going to cost me to fix that in the context of your wonderful, gracious forgiveness, which I appreciate. And if you are wanting to forgive someone and just do it secretly and privately, don't call that reconciliation. Don't expect that to do much good for the relationship. might be good for you. might get it off your chest. But if you want true reconciliation and to be trustworthy in a relationship, you're going to have to let people know what's required. 
and how they've hurt you. And the context, as I say, of all of this is massive grace. Because Matthew 18 then goes on into Matthew 19, which is about forgiving and forgiving. So the concept is, I want to forgive you. But I also want to be reconciled with you because I matter. And so do you. And so I'm going to let you know how you've hurt me. And let you know what it's going to cost. And then I'm going to work with you so that you can be worthy of that trust. As we conclude here, Matthew 5. God blesses those who work for peace. Not just who privately maintain peace, who work for peace, who speak the truth in love, who extend grace, but also do the proper hard conversations and work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. If we could do this right, if we get get rid of the reluctant, resentful yes, and the sort of subtle ways we try to control one another because actually we're just giving far too much trust. If we could get really brave enough to speak the truth in love, the water cooler may just have to go back to being a place where you get water from. Gav's going to wrap up. Thanks, Paul. Um, Fiona, you're just going to make your app. Um, the scripture that Paul spoke about, he was faithful with little, is made rule over much. And so often we look at that and we actually apply it to finances. If I'm faithful with my finances, God will make me rule over much. But if God is a God of relationship, how much more does that scripture actually apply to relationship? When you're faithful with those relationships around you, Will God multiply the relationships that you are part of? When I was praying this morning before the service, it really felt that God is talking to the area of forgiveness and reconciliation. God is about forgiveness and reconciliation. He sent His Son to die for us. That's how seriously He takes it. And when we don't reconcile and forgive, it's like a slap in the face. My mom passed away about three weeks ago, and it's, it was difficult. It was a difficult year leading up to it. But the beauty of it was I had time to actually ask my mom for forgiveness for things that I had done and forgive her for things that she had maybe done. And when I was called, and I, it's 2 o'clock on a Saturday morning, um, so it's not going well, and I had to head down to the hospital, and, and I didn't make it. I got to the hospital, and she had gone. It was just this surreal experience. I couldn't look behind the, co- behind the curtain. She was, li- she was lying there. But to know that within that 35 minutes, she had gone from this life to the next, that she was with Jesus. And she knows Jesus. But to have that shift and realize that we will all be there at some stage. I'm going to ask you all to stand, please. You just close your eyes. And I wonder, is there someone in your life that you need to forgive, that you need to make restoration with? And I know that you probably don't. But if there was, if you had to call for one person in your mind that you need to reconcile with, and it's hard and it's difficult, can I challenge you to be reconciled? to ask God to help you to forgive because it's hard. Relationships are hard. They are really, really hard. I got a message two days ago, uh, just before the long weekend, a guy that I work with uh, passed away, heart attack, young guy. He was here three days ago and now he's gone. We never know when our lives are going to end. Don't miss this time to be reconciled. And if your heart is stirring, there's somebody that's coming to mind. Father, I thank you that where our faith is not 
big enough, where we just don't have it in us. We know that you do, because you are. I am. You are more than enough. And would you give us the strength and the grace to cross that divide, to forgive, even where we've been hurt, and you may have been hurt deeply by the church. It may even be me. And if it is, I'm sorry. But where we've been hurt, and we just don't feel that we have the grace and the power to forgive, would you give that to us? And would you make a way where a way needs to be made because you are the God who can. In Jesus' name.